evening again, everyone. It's Tribal Theocrat Live. This is May 11th, 2013. I'm Christian Gray. And today we talk about all things Confederacy. Should be a fun show. New guest tonight. There will be no show next week. We typically go the second or the third Saturday of the month, but we're moving that back and we'll just pick up on June 1st. And we'll have Jamie Dobb on June 1st and June 15th to talk about some interesting issues over in the UK. He's a Brit, and he's going to talk about what's going on over there from our our perspective of kinism. And I, I, I want to say something about Wheeler McPherson's blog. He's a, a friend, and his blog is yonderfield.wordpress.com. Thanks, Wheeler, for your kind comments. He always leaves comments on on the site, and he thanks me for... <laughs> for not talking and letting my guests talk. And I, I really appreciate that because I think that the real quality of the show is the entertaining guests who bring really specialized information. So I, uh, I appreciate the compliments, although tonight it's going to be a little bit of a conversation with our guests, so I may be talking more tonight. So I hope I don't go on too big of a rant. But thank you, Wheeler, for your kind comments. And please check out his blog, yonderfield.wordpress.com. Tonight's guest is Kay Paul from Mississippi, and you can interact with us via the chat room at tribaltheocrat.com. You'll see a link. If you have questions, we'll try to get to those periodically, and I want to welcome Kay Paul right now. How you doing? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing good. Really good to have you on. I thank you for doing the show. This is a, a fun topic to talk about, isn't it? It is. It is. I won't lie. I'm a little nervous, but um, I'll get over it. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really a fun topic. But this this is a fun topic. It's also a serious topic. And I don't know where you want to dig in. I know that you've talked to me offline a lot about the, uh, the cause of the war, and you have a lot to say regarding the the religious differences between the North and South that a lot of people don't knock, uh, know about. So, you're welcome to dig in wherever you'd like, K. Paul. Okay. Um, first, first, I want to start off by saying I have a confession to make. Go ahead. Uh, K. Paul is not my real name. I know that's a shocker. Uh, it is. My I'm real name shocked. is Rusty Shackelford. Rusty Shackelford. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, my name's Kevin. All right. Yeah, I was going to call you K. Dog. K dog. Yeah, because when some when I see K Paul, I just think K dog for some reason. <laughs> I'll just. Call I know you everybody a, was just sure that K Paul is a real name. <clears throat> you used to have that Shackleford uh, Facebook profile before it was booted, right? Well, no, I've still got oh, it. I just don't it. use it. Okay. Well, we'll just call you. We'll call you K Paul for the night. <laughs> and you can call me Christian Gray. There you go, Christian Gray. <laughs> <laughs> um. All right, I guess I'll start um, with by saying that um, to me the the big deal with uh, the Civil War is the religious differences because I think they lead up to everything else. the The cultural differences come from the the religious differences, right? Yes, and. and um, I was surprised to find I was when I told you I'd come on, I was I did a little research on some things that I hadn't before. And I looked at 
and I really I don't have uh, names or or anything right now or links or anything, but I, I can give them to you later if, if anybody wants them. But what I discovered is that there are northern authors who saw it as a religious war to, who today saw, see it as a religious war. One big difference you'll see between authors from back from back then and today are not the same. They see it in a totally different way. And of course, today they're looking at it from a modernist point of view, right? Yes. Okay. Um, uh, you know, uh, George Washington, he forbid his soldiers to discuss regional differences, which shows you how far this goes back. Before the Constitution was written, there were regional differences. And the reason for that is um, because when the Scotch-Irish and the Huguenots, uh, I've heard some people say Huguenots, well, Huguenots, isn't it? I, I've always just tried to – I've never been able to pronounce it, so I just avoid it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it is – it probably is Huguenot. Uh, maybe, maybe we have some experts in the chat room who can correct us. <laughs> you know, one thing, I don't have the chat room open, so I can't see them. That's okay. I can. You need to focus on. Uh, yeah. And I'll just but, relay questions if they come for you. How's that? <laughs> All I, right. Yeah. <clears throat> but the, um, the Puritans came here and they were Calvinists and they were uh, awesome people, great people. I think a weakness they had is that. Most of them, if not all of them, were Congregationalists. And um, they they were godly people. They had a lot of influence on the way the United States shaped up to be. And, um, but when the Scotch-Irish and the Huguenots came, came along, they found they weren't welcome because by that time, the the New Englanders had pretty much abandoned their fathers and grandfathers' um, religion, and not only their Calvinism, but their Christianity. So the Scotch-Irish and the Huguenots went south, and they still had strong Calvinist and Christian uh, roots and they and they clung to them pretty tight and uh, you can chime in and help me anytime you want to <laughs> I, I hear from the, the chat room that it is Huguenots okay uh, Scotch that's probably a southerner that said that one day y'all learn how to take, talk like us and everything will be better <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I can uh, if I'm around southern people I think I automatically go into southern twang mode <laughs> But I, I, you ever I, thought about this? If we'd won the war, you would have to speak Southern to sound intelligent. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I, I try to use my Yankee voice on radio. <laughs> you do a great job. <laughs> <laughs> I had uh, Douglas Kelly as a seminary professor for systematic theology, and boy, I think he was either South Carolina or North Carolina, and uh, it was it was pretty annoying. <laughs> <laughs> 
you know, I told you, and this is this is an aside here, but while while we're kidding around, I think I told you a while back when we were speaking that um, we have people in Mississippi. We have people who speak country, and we have people who speak southern. I, I do believe there's a difference, and um, the southern. Uh, uh, the man who owns the company I work for has that sort of that um, old colonel style way of speaking, you know? Yeah. Like the cartoon guy calling for his dog, Belvedere. <laughs> <clears throat> but um, now the um, the Unitarianism um in the North really caused these people to be blind though. And, um, I guess I'm getting, getting back on the subject here, but, uh, <clears throat> it was, you know, and I hesitate. Sometimes I hesitate to say these things because I don't want to come off to Northern Christians. <laughs> and most of the chemists I've met are Northerners. <laughs> are from California. Yeah. Um, I don't want to come off like, well, we're the great Christians down here and uh, you guys are all messed up because I realized that before, during and after the civil war, there were good Christian people in the North. Okay. Right. Um, but, and I believe it seems to me like there's an awakening among people outside outside the South that the South is almost lost. Um, Now you mentioned the, you mentioned Unitarianism. That was, that was largely the faith of, of Yankees. We're talking about enlightenment rationalism and strong religious Unitarian Unitarianism against the, the Calvinistic South. Right. And, uh, I heard Joe Moorcraft say that he went and visited a church in New England that was a great Calvinist historical church. It had been there for, I forget how many years. I mean, like, you know, two, three hundred years, old church. Uh, of course, the building was not the same one, but the, this is how old this church was. And he said he asked some of the people there if <laughs> what the the founders of the church who they were, what, what religion they were. And, and he knew, he knew the answer to that, that they were staunch Calvinists. And these people answered him. They were, well, they were Unitarians. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I I heard, I heard my pastor, uh, PCA pastor refer to one of our pastors refer to the battle hymn of the Republic as, as a great, Great song, and I'm not sure whether our listeners know this, but that was written by a Unitarian, Julia Ward Howell. Yeah. And and the lyrics in her mind, because she didn't believe in the deity of Christ, didn't believe in hell, didn't believe in the authority of the scriptures. That's right. Uh, she believed in many, Christianity was one of many ways to be saved, but those lyrics can be interpreted as uh, not not Christian, but the, the Northern Army coming to, to, to stomp out the, the South. And I, I'm, I was just appalled that 
the pastors did not even know that history of the song, specifically that she was a Unitarian and called it a good song. Horrible. I, I'm in the choir at my church and uh, PCA church. And I went about two years ago. Um, it was the week of the 4th of July and our church normally does, you know, if it's Christmas, we do Christmas songs, that kind of thing. And, uh, we use only hymns mainly. Yeah. Well, entirely. And I walked into choir practice we practice before we go into the sanctuary and they were practicing the battle hymn of the Republic. And I turned around and walked out. And instead of singing in the choir, I sat down in my, in my pew and, um, I never made an issue of it. Yeah. I never discussed it. You know, my cousin was sitting with my boys on the other side of the sanctuary pointing at me and snickering the whole time that they were doing the song. <laughs> it, it just shows but, you, it shows you how susceptible our people are to propaganda. They don't know it. It's really sad. It's really sad. Things that lies have been truth for so long that nobody knows the difference. Yeah. So it, it's, it's really sad. And what's really sad is that I was taught by my grandfather and my dad. Um, I'm sorry, I'm a Southerner, my daddy. Uh, but um, I was taught all my life that you know, Lincoln was a was a a war criminal and and all kind of things like this. But uh, I was born in '61, and nobody. But th- these kids now, well, they're not kids anymore. They're grown. They don't have a clue. They don't have a clue. But we can blame it on my generation and what my, the guy that used to be my pastor called the um, Woodstock generation, the Woodstock generation. I I know it's not what we're here to talk about, but they, they have sucked things up and they're in the church. It's unbelievable. And you know what? I'm sorry to go off on a tangent, but while we're talking about this, I'm just want to throw this in a couple years ago. I was in a Sunday school class, an adult Sunday school class, and they or they had material from Dave Cook. You ever heard of that? No, I have I think not. His name is Dave Cook. It, it, it was awful stuff, but uh, he actually had a, you know how the Sunday school books will have material, like telling a little story, and then they go into the scripture. And they were actually comparing the return of uh, Nelson Mandela to Africa out of prison to the return of Christ. Yeah. That, most that of, is, who was I listening to today that uh, I was listening to a brief podcast where Lou Rockwell interviewed Thomas DeLorenzo, the, the famous author who writes oh, yeah. to expose Lincoln. He's done some great work. And he said that when he was growing up in public school, I think he's uh, a little bit older than you. He was taught that Lincoln, there were parallels made between Lincoln and Jesus Christ. Lincoln was, uh, he, he died on Good Friday, and he, uh, I forget that there's a, a parallel that made to, even to the resurrection, yeah, that he 
redeemed the nation, you know, by abolishing slavery. And there, he saw that as a kid, he saw that as pure blasphemy. And, and that's one of the things that primed his pump to get him to that's research. A, it's amazing, isn't it? I, yeah. I, I'm, you know, you don't have to be a genius or even know, have to know history to, to know, uh, hero worship when you see it. It's a complete cult, this, uh, this worship around Abraham Lincoln. And we'll talk about him in a minute. Let's move on from the religious differences between the Unitarian North and the Calvinistic South, unless you have anything to add. But just to get into the actual causes for the war, what most people think the war was caused over as uh, compared to what really happened. What were the causes? Why did that war happen? Um, you know, that's a, I think that's a complex question. Um, because, and that's why I always wind up back at the religious differences because the religious differences are what cause everything else to fall into place. Um, a big issue and forgive me, you may feel like I'm, I'm staying on religion here, but one big thing was the difference between, uh, um, the, the South had the view that the constitutionalist fathers before them had on the difference between, well, what, on what equality was. Uh, the Southerners uh, knew that true equality means that all men are equal before the law. And um, the Northerners believed in, and still in today, it seems to be the status quo to believe in egalitarianism, which believes in the same kind of equality, basically, that communist does, communism does. Um, so the North here was, if anyone was egalitarian, it was the North. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm going to read it. Do you mind if I read a quote from uh, Not at all. James Henley Thornwell? He was a Southern minister, uh, theologian, and I, I think he was a scholar. I want to read this. Uh, I'd love to read it all, but it's, it would be too long. But uh, I, the parties in this conflict, now he died before the war started. I think he died the year the war started. Um, you may not want to quote me on that, but he saw it coming. And he said, the parties in this conflict are not merely abolitionists and slaveholders. They are atheists, socialists, communists, red Republicans, Jacobins on one side, and the friends of order and regulated freedom on the other. In one word, the world is the battleground, Christianity and atheism the combatants, and the progress of humanity at stake. I read that to my kids today, and they said, man, that could have been written today. Um, that, that's a very that's a very powerful statement, and that does really sum up the religious differences between between the two camps. The Southerns had because they were Calvinistic, they had a a, a good view of superiors and inf and inferiors, didn't they? As opposed to egalitarianism, 
They did. They, they, um, well, they had the same view that Job had, you know, in Job uh, chapter 31, starting with verse 13, it says, if I've denied justice to any of my servants, whether male or female, when they had grievance against me, and forgive me, I'm quoting, I'm reading the NIV, <laughs> but I like the way it's worded in this, in this uh, particular verse. It says, if I've denied justice to any of my servants, whether male or female, when they had a grievance against me, what will I do when God confronts me? What will I answer when called to account? Did not he who made me in the womb make them and did not? the same one form us both within our mothers. And they understood back then that the, the ground at the cross is level. And when a per, if a little black lady with no education and um, with a, who, who has become who is one of the elect and, and has become a, a disciple of Jesus Christ in her ignorance and in her, she may be poor as dirt. I don't know why I said black lady. It could be white lady, but this person may not know a whole lot, but when they'll be welcomed by Jesus Christ into heaven with open arms, just as a rich person would be welcomed by Jesus Christ into heaven with open arms. But on on this planet, in this time, on this earth, there is no such thing as egalitarian equality. And Job understood that. Job didn't apologize for having a servant, which means slave. Um, he understood that they were that he and the slave were made in God's image, and he understood that before the law and before God, he would answer to God for if he mistreated that servant. But he, but he never apologized for having that servant. That's excellent. Um, um, I mean, I, I when I was a kid, and even today, I, I looked, did my best with an unbiased mind to try to find. Uh, Slavery as a sin, and I never could. I've never been able to. The Bible does not condemn slavery. Um, I didn't mean to. I guess maybe I went off there, but told you I'm not used to doing this. <laughs> well, it's it's a good segue into the causes of the war, and certainly that was a, a, a material cause for the war. But what what do we have to say? What do we have to add to that discussion rather than just taking the typical line of, well, the South practiced slavery, so how can you be opposed to the North stamping them out? Um, Why does that not fly? Um, This this probably gets us into Lincoln, because Lincoln, I, I, I think that our audience will probably realize this, but Lincoln said that he really didn't care one way or another on slavery, whether we kept them or got rid of them. That's right. He was, well, he was in favor of saving the union. 
Yeah, and he was in favor of, in my opinion, Lincoln was in favor of saving the Union because of, um, well, for uh, financial reasons. Yeah. Yeah, he, he didn't he didn't care about the abolitionists, he didn't care about the blacks, he didn't care about the South. He was a lawyer, and um of course I don't claim to be an expert on this, but um he um yeah, I, I want to throw this in here real quick. Um uh, on the April thirteenth um, on hour two, I would encourage everybody. I listen to, to the political cesspool, and probably I'm sure a lot of people that listen to you do. Uh, maybe everybody. But if you'll download hour two of the April 13th political cesspool show, Keith Alexander, I thought I knew about the tariffs. And, uh, I just thought I did until I listened to Keith Alexander. Of course, he's a lawyer, you know, and Keith Alexander does an excellent job. He goes into great detail, and I don't even have all that information. Someday I'm going to go back and write it all down. Probably should have done it for tonight. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, he knew so much detail on it. But I, I know this. I know that uh, Southern Cotton – made up 57% of all the United States exports back then. And uh, I know that the North had seaports that froze in the wintertime and the South had ports that did not. And uh, the North wanted to, to uh, put tariffs on the South between 40 and 60%. Um, and the South was willing to pay them 10%, but they wanted between 40 and 60%. And um, there was a senator from Missouri named Thomas Hart Benton. And this was a northern um, senator who said this, he said, under federal legislation, the exports of the South have been the basis of federal revenues. Everything goes out and nothing is returned to them in the shape of government expenditures. The expenditures flow north. This is a reason that wealth disappears from the South and rises up in the North. So that's a biggie right there. <laughs> Don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it, it's a, it's a real biggie. They were the South was the golden goose, and I believe in his first inaugural address, Lincoln, he was aware of a I think it was the Corwin Amendment to the Constitution, which he was said he would be in favor of signing, and that was to uh, prohibit the federal government from ever interfering with Southern slavery. He is he didn't care. He just wanted to save the Union. And it was only when, when the South seceded that, that slavery became a, a problem. But yeah, it was over the tariff. The tariff was a big issue. I think I read somewhere that over 80% of the tariff was paid by 
the the South, and then over eighty percent of the of the tariff was spent on northern expenditures and northern railroads and cities and industry. And that's that's to give the, the South uh, the shaft and to steal from the South. Yeah, exactly. As you said, the gold, the goose with the golden egg, nobody cares about the goose. They want the egg. Yeah. And they're... Um, I, so, you know, I guess this is kind of off the subject in a way, but I've been, I've thought about this many times. I wonder if Lincoln had known what the result would be of what he did if he would have gone through with it. You know. Yeah. But I'll tell you something else. There was a, another thing that was a cause of the war. And I can't help myself. I keep going back to religion. I think there was a religious purpose for this. There was a religious view of, for this. The, the, North, the North saw they wanted a strong centralized government. Yes. Um, and we've got it today. Glory. Hallelujah. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and even, even pro union, pro Yankee, uh, historians will tell you that the, the so-called civil war or what Lincoln did completely changed the, the, the nature of this, of this nation. We did go from a constitutional Republic to a, cent- a centralized power. And even mm-hmm. even their historians admit that it completely changed the the type of government we have, and that's that's right. That's without question. We went from the United States of America, with the focus on the word states (plural), to now whenever we say the United States of America, we don't think about the plurality of the states. We think about the union. It's 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 a singular phrase, the United States as one country. It's a that's country. right. I'm sorry. No, you go ahead. Well, that's right, and and in the day and the time that you and I live in, sadly enough, we see what. Um, uh, forgive me, but tell me your name again. Uh, I know it, but I can't think right now. My name? No, uh, <laughs> no, I can think. I can think that well. <laughs> uh, Beecher, uh, Harriet. Oh, yeah. Beecher Stowe, is that right? Yes. Uh, as she envisioned, I think, I think that um, a lot of people did um, uh, from it, with that mindset. We we have not just gone to a central government. Now we have become a world empire, policing the world. Um. I mean, the United States is like an octopus. Now, we both know it's falling apart, but it's an empire. It's become a, an evil empire. It really has. I mean, in other words, it's not just a central government for us. You know, we tell we tell the other nations of the world, you know, 
be this way or or whatever. I remember when I first got the internet, I thought I was in heaven. I was just doing research on everything I could find. Yeah. And at the time I was an evangelifish uh, Bush worshiper. And I remember looking up things on George Bush, uh, W and uh, W Bush. And, uh, and I found a website and I, I don't remember all the details about it, but I don't think it was one of these uh, fly by night type of things. And he was, the guy was talking about how they were enforcing democracy the, the dream of the globalist is to enforce democracy over the entire world. Yeah. And that's what the North did to the South was force demo- quote democracy on us. Um, uh, and now, I mean, now it's gone, you know, we're going global with it. We're going to force these, these uh, guys, these um, Ar- Arabs over there to, even though it's impossible <laughs> with their religion, we're going to force democracy. Yeah, American, American exceptionalism. We can do whatever we want, and no one, no one dare criticize us. Hey, my eyes have seen the glory. just to recap on on the causes for the war we do have serious religious differences between north and south and there was the huge tariff issue where the south was being robbed literally robbed Uh, slavery of course was an issue what do we need to say about that because uh, some of the writers try to dismiss it some of the libertarian writers and those who want to give an anti-establishment approach to this they 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 focus too much on the the the, uh, the formal reason the states' rights issue and the tariff, but it it does it does appear when you read the the state constitutions after the southern states seceded that they were very concerned with saving the institution of slavery. And I think that we as Christians who who are honest need to bite the bullet and say, yeah, that was that was the material cause. Um, whether it was a higher material cause than than the tariff, I don't know, but it was a serious. It was it was serious enough to include in their state constitutions that they did need to preserve that because again, that was a, a huge attack on their economy. If they have to outlaw slavery in the South's an agrarian um, state, and that's going to be robbing them as well. Do you have any comments on the slavery issue? Right. Well, the the um. I have read where you still there. Yeah, I think you you yeah, heard a little noise there. Uh, <laughs> I have read where um, where some people believe that slavery would eventually kind of phase out yeah. uh, some of the the um, plantation owners in the South were talking. Were buddies with some of the industrialists in the north talking about machinery that would make things go better. There were actually complaints among some some of the plantation owners about, uh, well, a lot of times slavery was not po- profitable because it, uh, pro- uh, slave, slaves were 
would try to. Uh, they used to. <laughs> they had something they called getting in, getting it over on old Massa. Yeah. <laughs> uh, getting it over on old Master. In other words, when when the cats away, the mice will play, and and uh, but but I agree with what you were saying though. Uh, the the in in my opinion, whether or not slavery would have ever ended, the abolitionists, what they were doing is they were saying it's going to end, and by God, it's going to end now. Yeah. And that would be this may be a silly illustration. But that would be like today if I came, if I was president and I passed a law or Congress or whatever, and I passed a law and I said, told all the farmers from now on, tractors are not allowed. You can't use tractors anymore. You know, I mean, they got to shut down. And uh, what they were telling, they were demanding of the South was, Freedom for the slaves immediately. And, you know, it, look at what freedom for the slaves did to us. Yeah. Look what it did to us and look what it did to them. Um, it's, um, the, the, it's really sad, you know, and I've looked around. I, I see it every day uh, living in Mississippi. I see it all the time. You look around you and you see uh, a place where, and I had somebody tell me recently, I won't say who it was, you wouldn't know him anyway, but somebody very close to me he says, hey, well, you need to forget that. Why are you so hung up on this civil war, north, south, and all this? What's the big deal? Well, what happened then, uh, it, my goodness, if you study history just a little bit, and I'm no expert by any means, but if you study he history just a little bit, you, you sit 200 years, 150 years, 250 years, it's nothing. And uh, what we have today in the South is a bunch of slaves. Mississippi is a welfare state. Um where an individual like me would complain about uh, people on welfare getting a big percentage of my paycheck. Well, guys like in the North can complain about states like mine getting your paycheck. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mississippi takes in more than it gives out. Right. We are a welfare state. Why are we a welfare state? Is it because all the uh, – well, Hollywood would have you believe all the stupid rednecks down here are sitting on a porch smoking a corncob pipe, drinking moonshine, and we, and we all quit school in the fourth grade? Um, no. Uh, don't know how to say this in a <laughs> – don't know how to put this in a uh, – know how to put this so I'll just put it the way I know how to put it because blacks were set free they were uneducated 
Um, I would argue that many of them were uneducated. Oh. Ah. <laughs> and um, and they here they are. Okay, I, I, I it's kind of hard for me to put. Sometimes I have a problem putting things in words. It's a lot easier behind a keyboard than it is behind a microphone. But you know, I can't edit my post here. <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask you a question about about Lincoln's view. Of, Lincoln's yeah. views of, of on blacks here in a minute, but just to, to sum up the causes of the war and uh, it, the, the war between the states, the Civil War, the War of Northern Aggression, whatever you want to call it, it was not launched to free the slaves. Lincoln said as much. Even the Northern, the, the Northern Army, for crying out loud, when they heard of the Emancipation Proclamation, Mm-hmm. Many of them defected and said, "We we didn't know we were fighting to free the slaves. That we thought we were fighting to save the Union. So it, slavery was important for the South. That was one of the reasons they seceded. But it wasn't why the war was fought." Now, one thing that that bugs me, uh, even by De Lorenzo and and those who want to get the truth out about the Lincoln, is they always bring up his his views. Um, that whites were superior to blacks. In fact, and then that podcast I alluded to earlier, De Lorenzo said that uh, Lincoln was what we would call today a white supremacist. And so the point is, uh, we need to tell people that Lincoln wasn't the hero the blacks think they uh, think he, <laughs> think he was, or that whites think he was. But to paint Lincoln as something different than eighty, ninety percent of everybody else is really misleading exactly. it was was there anybody who really wanted to have social equality with the negro i, I wish it's a shame I, I don't have this in my notes i made some notes here it's a shame i don't have this in my notes but i want to say that it was uh harriet beecher stowe herself and uh, uh if i'm wrong about this y'all just google it y'all just google it and you and You'll, you can. It's very easy to find, I know. But one of the abolitionists, I know it was a female. I'm almost positive it was her. She said the only hope for the Negro was that he would uh, interbreed with a white person, white people. The abolitionists did not see the white. <laughs> the abolitionists were white supremacists. If you want to go that. You and me both know that white supremacist is a dirty word. Right. Be careful what you say, you know, but I, you know, I, my gosh, we live in a time when nobody can say what they, what they think, much less what's true. The, um, Tom, but, huh? I'm sorry. I jumped in on you. I'm just eager. No, go ahead. Go ahead. No, if you wanted to finish your point, I was going to follow. Well, I just wanted to say that that um, yes, you're you're right. You're exactly right. The majority of people at that time believed that whites were superior to blacks, and the Northerners actually, the Northern some states, some entire states, and some cities, especially your your bigger cities in the North. Put up sign. All of a sudden, they're going free the slaves, free the slaves, free the slaves, and then suddenly they're free and they're going. Oh crap! They're going to come here. 
and they put <laughs> that's very professional of me. <laughs> no, that's all right. But huh? No, I yeah, I, they, I understand the point. Yeah. Suddenly, suddenly, well, yes, it's great for them to f- be free in the South, but we don't want them here. Yeah. And there were pe- there were signs going up. Blacks do not do not stay here. No free or free slaves do not come here and stay. And some of them were flogged publicly, flogged for uh, for staying in a city for over two months. Now that's historical fact. There. Yeah. No, absolutely. There were state constitutions in the North that prohibited blacks from migrating up there. They didn't want to blacks to compete with uh, with the labor up there. They did not want them. Yeah, and can I can I jump a little bit of a head ahead of what we were, we're going to yeah. talk about later? But I'll tell you, when I was a kid, and the schools were integrated here in the South, I can remember being chastised by some Yankee friends who went to school with me about, ah, uh, you know, we didn't like this. But then in the seventies, when busing was enforced up north, they started raising hell about it. Yeah. <laughs> it is, um, you know, was, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. Absolutely. Right? I was perusing Chapter 6 of Thomas of Tom Wood's really good book called The Politically Incorrect Guide to American History. It's about the war between the states. It's a really good chapter, but one of his... Uh, his talking points is Lincoln believed that whites were superior and favored the, de- the the deportation of freed slaves. This was not uncommon, though, and that's and that's my point is that we need to be able to bite the bullet and say, look, if you're going to paint Lincoln as a bad guy because he didn't want social equality with blacks, or if you want to paint Lincoln as a bad guy because he favored expatriation of blacks, then then paint everybody with that brush because not a lot of people wanted them. If you're going to free the, the blacks. And there's no uh, slavery, then colonize them. That wasn't not that was not uncommon, and so I don't like that tactic of making Lincoln to be some white supremacist, as if as if there <laughs> he was the only one that stood out in a in a in a multicultural um, liberal nation. Yeah, yeah, he was the hick. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he was his own standout hick. <laughs> yeah. Well, do you want to do anything about secession? Because we didn't we, we talked about the cause of the war. I didn't really mention secession. The, the when the Do you have anything you want to add about that? Mm, well, I think that's been discussed a lot. Um we I've heard people say that we had no you know, there's some people say that we had no right. It was a rebellion. We had no right to secede. And uh, no, the Constitution is does not say you have a right to secede. <laughs> you know? But it was understood, and most of the state constitutions even had it. Yeah, they had they had a clause of. Yeah, well, they made the federal government. Absolutely. The federal government did not make them. Yeah, I, and even, uh, even Jeff, you Davis. know, go ahead. Well, the um, the you ever watched? And man, I recommend this big time. Uh, well, we were supposed to recommend things later, but <laughs> the Great Civil War debate 
with Peter Marshall and Steve Wilkins. Oh yeah, I've seen it. Oh, it's awesome. It is. But um Peter Marshall uh even called it a rebellion. Yeah. Uh, you know, he even said and a man like him, and God bless him, he died not long ago. But he even said that um he called it a rebellion and he even said that that um the federal government came ahead of the states. Now he knows good and well, yes, maybe the the before the states, but not before the colonies. Right. I mean yeah, and really not before the states, but the argument that Jeff Davis used, he was the president of the CSA, was the was the Tenth Amendment. And he and yeah. I'll, I'll just quote um, Tom Woods. That amendment said that any power not delegated to the federal government by the states and not prohibited to the states by the Constitution remain the right of the states or the people. And the Constitution is silent on the question of secession, and the states never delegated to the federal government any power to suppress secession. Therefore, secession remained a right uh, reserved for the states. And that was, um, he also adds, that, that was partly why James Buchanan, who preceded Lincoln as the president, right. had allowed the first southern states to secede in the first place. There were seven southern states that seceded under him, and he didn't want to stop them because he thought they had that 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 right as well. Not something. Yeah, that, and not to mention, not to mention the northern states that were screaming about secession all the time. Yeah. Before that, and this really gets us into a lot of the the abuses of Lincoln and what he did to suppress northern. Uh, d- northern political dissidents who were completely disagreed with what he was doing. But you mentioned earlier, before we talk about that, the, the, the Virginia, New York, Rhode Island, those were those were states that included into the ratifications of the Constitution uh, the right to secede from the Union. So the that they were accepted into the Union with knowledge that they wanted to secede if the federal government became oppressive. It was not an issue at all to secede. Most people knew that, and that's why Lincoln became such a jerk and didn't he throw up to 30,000 Northerners in jail? Uh, I read 40,000. Yeah, 30 to 40,000. And closed over 100 newspapers. Yeah, and this is, these are Northern dissenters. Northern newspapers, right. Yeah, and that's what he did. And we think of the Copperheads and the people who weren't for slavery, but they understood that the South had the, every reason to secede in order just to be left alone. And Lincoln said... No, thank you. We're gonna. I'm gonna go ahead and throw you in jail. And he even, if I could bring up my notes here, I took some notes on some uh, a few sermons I listened to by John Weaver, which were really excellent. That several governors, I think six governors, said no to Lincoln's initial request for troops. Imagine that today. Yeah. Yeah. Imagine. <laughs> imagine six states saying, "Nope, you're not getting our boys to go fight your invasion." of some some nation who did nothing to you. According to DeLorenzo, the um, 
a hundred thousand. I guess he rounded that number off. It could have been more or less, I guess, but a hundred thousand. And you mentioned this earlier. Uh, Northern soldiers abandoned the war. Yeah. When uh, when the uh, Emancipation Proclamation was uh, signed. <clears throat> And um, that says a lot right there. And, you know, that's something I remind myself of. I think that's one reason Kenism is more attractive to me. I'm a member of the League of the South, but uh, and I'm all about the South, okay? Don't get me wrong. Uh, I'm not backing up. But um, um. I realize the the federal government, especially today, is they're the ones. In other words, with the Northerners, all the Northerners that that saw so many things the way we did. Uh, I don't want to just come out and make the North completely the bad guy. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I, I'm. I'm trying to yeah, say because because there were so many there were so many average citizens in the north who didn't want any any business with Lincoln's war. Exactly. And I mean, you're you're talking to one. I'm I'm a geo, I'm a geographical Yankee, but I can I consider myself a, a Confederate in terms of allegiance. And I even had, as you know, a former member of. One of the Southern outfits. I've got some ancestors who fought and died for the Tennessee um, in that war, but yeah, there are tons of them even today. Um, we um of Yankees who, you, who hate. You Lincoln. always stop your program after an hour. We usually right? go. We typically go ninety minutes on average. Sometimes less. Sometimes more. The reason I ask is because I was concerned about having enough time and now I'm go- we'll watch yeah, the clock. Yeah, I know. Everyone does that. They think, oh man, we're going to knock it out in, a, in <laughs> half an hour. What are we going to talk about? <laughs> and then it ends up going um, 90 minutes or two hours sometimes. So if you need to go... A lot, um, no, I'm a lot more comfortable than I actually thought yeah. I would be. I was a little nervous because I've never done a show like this. But, uh, I mean, I wasn't shaking in my shoes, but, you know, I wanted to... I want people to enjoy it because they're going to take their time and listen to it. I think so, too. And some of the things we talk about, most will already know, but sometimes uh, we don't know who's going to be listening to the podcast. Maybe That's some right. maybe some typical herd mind uh, sheeple picks it up, and we want to get enough of the, the salient points in there on the recording hey. to help people wake up. Hey, we may have at uh, my church tomorrow, we may have an emergency uh Session meeting. I may be sitting in the center ring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that could happen. Uh, <laughs> well, we'll, we'll you know, I've about come to the point where I just don't care, you know. But anyway, yeah. I, I wouldn't think you could get into too much trouble as ah, as a Mississippian talking about. It's uh, not about me anyway. Let's let's get away from the cause of the war. And talk about some of the aftermath, not 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 the the direct reconstruction that happened, which was horrible, but integration, forced integration after Jim Crow. And you grew up going to elementary school and high school when they were doing this. 
what was it like to to live to live in a society where everyone regardless of their views of slavery and and even of the war did not want to be going to school with blacks and then all of a sudden they were forced into the schools and as you told me a couple of days ago even black teachers were imported into white schools, not just black students, but even black teachers. Tell us some stories and some anecdotes about what that was like. Well, I'll tell you another group of people that were forced into something they didn't want, and that was blacks. You're not going to hear that um, on CBS or NBC or Fox News. (laughs) But... um, you know, something I didn't tell you, and I, I, I didn't do this on purpose. It just dawned on me later. I went to school first, second, and third grade at a public school. And uh, what I didn't tell you and, and uh, is that my, my daddy, my parents, I remember sitting around the dinner table I'm sorry, supper table. I keep forgetting I'm Southern. Uh, sitting around the supper table, and my daddy was complaining. I, I was too young to really understand much about it. And he says, well, I really can't afford it. We're going to do it anyway. So I went to a on a private all-white school the year that blacks and whites were integrated okay now that doesn't mean anything you'll find out why just because i wasn't there day one okay and i didn't mean to mislead you by the way okay uh because i did see what went on uh because actually i was in more trouble than a lot of people would have been because for three semesters I was at a private school. Then my daddy, because the school I went to was kind of thrown together overnight with old retired teachers. Uh, My brother was doing terrible in reading in the first grade. I was doing awful in the uh, fifth grade with uh, uh, my mathematics. And I would, and plus it was just so much on my daddy. My mother was a stay-at-home mom. Thank God. Praise the Lord. Uh, hooray for stay-at-home moms. And my 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 daddy, it was just too much for him to pay for. And um, with three kids in, pro- in private school. And so he, we went back. I left. I went first, second, and third to a public school. I came back this the uh, second semester of the fifth grade and the first day i was there uh but i was forced by a very angry mean bitter black teacher to sit with a black guy and we were going to study together well he was just anything but Uh, he didn't know what he was doing. And, uh, on the playground later that day, 
he had a, uh, probably 10 blacks make a circle around me and they were going to uh, beat me up. And that was my introduction to integrated uh, schools. The teachers, uh, the ones who weren't mean and angry, were were um, well, not very smart. <laughs> yeah, I went from leaving this school one way and coming back to it entirely in a different way. Um. <laughs> we had a one teacher, an English teacher. She had us call out. Um, she called out words to us to write down, and she wanted us to go home that night and write the definitions to these words. And one of the words was flow. <laughs> this, is, this is a funny story. Well, we all came home and the, we all came back to work the next day and we had written F-L-O-W. She was a black teacher, right? Oh, my God. Black. Yes. Your, your stereotypical uh, black that people make fun of. Uh, big, big woman. Uh, and, and I didn't tell you this, but when they integrated the schools, what they did was they closed the black schools. And they put the sent the blacks to our schools, which I won't lie to you. I saw some of them that I thought were scared to death. They'd probably been told we were going to eat them or something, you know. We were scared. They were scared. Uh, but this teacher, English teacher I'm talking about, she gave us all a bad mark because she said flow. And we wrote F-L-O-W, like the river flows. And she said, no, flow, you mopped the flow. You mopped the flow. <laughs> the same teacher, <clears throat> um, she would, she didn't know anything about what she was teaching. And she would take this teacher's book, I probably gave her instructions, and she would write, every day she would write the lesson on the board, blackboard, chalkboard whatever and and we would look at the lesson on the board and then we were supposed to do it and and she would literally uh, imagine this now this big black woman would sit there with and she would put her her face rest her face in her hand and she would say now y'all write down the lesson write the lesson down now and uh and y'all be quiet. And y'all, I, I know what you do. And she would mumble, and then we would literally watch her fall asleep in her hand. Wow. Yeah, she was not a teacher. She had no business teaching kindergarten. And she was my my fifth grade English teacher. Wow. She was <laughs> okay. your this this black woman who who spoke in heavy ebonics was your English yes. teacher. Yes, and she she came from a black school. I mean, yeah, and and uh, we used to have we her class was so fun to us because while she slept, we just had a ball. I bet. You know? <laughs> um, 
I was telling my sons tonight and their girlfriends about um, when um, one uh, black teacher I had, I fell on the playground. I was tussling with some other boys and it knocked me out. And when I came to, I was literally blind uh, temporarily, but um, I was not blind. And I woke up in my desk with a wet paper towel on my head. You know, I mean, what what would you do? I don't think your kids go to public school, but what would you do if a teacher, if your your kid was not out unconscious and then and then blind <laughs> and, and uh, you found out the teacher set him in his desk and put a wet paper towel on his head until he came to you know <laughs> yeah. no teacher would do that today I'll tell you that that'd be sued that's true um, I'll tell you I would like if you're going to give me this liberty to talk about that Time. I would love to tell you about this uh, relations between black and whites um, before forced integration. Um, and what I'm talking about, of course, uh, you know, forced integration was right there. I was there when it happened. But my daddy used to take me and my little brother fishing or hunting, and we would ride way up into the country where he grew up on these little one-lane dirt roads. And we'd go to you drive up and you to these this old shack of a house, and a black woman sitting on the front porch, and she says, "Oh." Who is that? Who is that? Who is that? I remember my daddy saying, it's Paul. And she said, oh, that's little Paul. That's little Paul. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. And hug him. And I remember him kind of turning his head the other way, like, oof. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but, you know, she would have a big dip of snuff in her lip. And and uh, she would go on and on and on about my my daddy's parents and my daddy's grandparents and my daddy's great grandparents and how she loved them so much and and daddy would say well well we want to fish in your pond is that okay and she's like yeah oh mr paul you don't have to ask us you just come on down here and you just go to that pond anytime you want to and there was no animosity. There was no anger. There was no bitterness. It was just blacks and whites who were who they were, and they grew up in the same area, and and they they didn't fight, and uh, and when when they came in with integrate force integration, what it was like, it reminds me of like I've seen so many people do very foolishly in my opinion. And I raised two boys by myself for 15 years now. 
And one thing I never did was when they got in a fight and were ready to kill each other was put them together and force them to kiss and make up or shake hands. And that's what that's what force integration was like. Um, you taken they were trying it was like mixing oil and water. Um, yeah. And integration didn't work, and it doesn't work today. Because right now you have white flight, they call it. Yeah. And out in the community I live in right now is is ninety nine percent white, and the blacks are in town, um, except for a few black families, like descendants of the old lady I was just describing to you, you know, who lived in the country anyway, and they know how to live with country white people. White flight is an amazing phenomenon. It is. It's, and, and you know, there's a black fellow that works with me. And some of us got into a discussion at the office a while back. And he said, well, this one white guy was trying to talk to him and without upsetting him. And he was just saying, you know, we just, we just, we just, and, and the black guy finished the sentence for him and said, want to be with our own kind. Yeah. And he said, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> there was a, I hope I didn't uh, go off on a tangent there. No, I think it was well said. It's good to hear these, these stories about what it was like. Um, yeah, it, it did destroy the black community. It, of course, whites took off. They didn't want it. They they. They abandoned public schools and chose other alternatives. And even today, after however many years it is and decades of, of forced integration and continuous propaganda, there's still that phenomenon where whites move. When they move, they move to wider neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. And there's a quote I wanted to bring up here. Where is that quote? Anyhow, I, I want to tell a story here in a second. <laughs> I told you this story about uh, our, our, I graduated high school and in the mid nineties. I'll just tell it now. <laughs> yeah, go, <laughs> go I, for it, man. Yeah, I went to, I went to a public school and, um, white suburb and south of the city. So the blacks who came to our school were called, they were called blacks. They were called Northern Community Students because I was on the south of the south side suburb. And <laughs> whenever we would bust the blacks down, they would, they would be called the Northern Community Students. And of course, even only 25 years ago, whatever it was, back then, my friends and I didn't hang around a bunch of racists, believe me, we just called the Northern community buses, we called them nigger buses. Everybody <laughs> called them that. And every morning on the announcements there, the, whoever did, whoever did the announcements would say, teachers, please allow 15 minutes for Northern community students because the buses were always, always late. And we would just look at our, each other and roll our eyes and say, yeah, nigger buses. But it wasn't because they didn't have enough time. They gave time for the bus drivers to go get the students. They accounted for that. It's just because. They're lazy, and they got there uh, not very punctually. (laughs) 
Well, <laughs> northern talk about a euphemism. Northern community students. They're, they're blacks. You know? <laughs> so that's that's my story about the northern community students. Any more anecdotes you want to talk about regarding forced integration? You know, you brought up, since you've brought the word nigger up, uh, I want to use it. (laughs) But um, another thing, and I guess this is not about, it is and it's not about integration. It's, it's, talking about relations between blacks and whites before they were forced to integrate, which my argument is that they were both against it for the most part, not the political Negroes who were getting money from the government, not marching Luton King, who was a communist um, using communist, um, you know, uh, ways uh, can't. I'm not thinking too clear now, but you know, procedures or whatever you want to say to to force his agenda. It wasn't really even his agenda in the first place. Uh, it was his Jewish masters, but um, when there were black men, my da- my daddy used to coon hunt. Okay. I'm sorry, he did what? He used to coon hunt. Okay. Uh raccoons. <laughs> right. Gotcha. All right. And uh I know to anybody who thinks, oh, he was a stupid hick, let me tell you something. He had dogs that were worth a lot of money. I mean, if anybody knows anything about this, it's it's uh and it takes a real man to coon hunt because they go, they follow hounds way off into the swamp with rubber boots on, and uh, to get something they're not even going to eat. You know, okay. Now some people eat them, but <laughs> we didn't. But uh, when he when I was really young, he used to coon hunt, and when I was very very young. I used to love I would disappear and my parents would find me in the in the dog pen. I would go in there and and just sit there and pet the dogs. I loved them. And uh we had a my daddy had a coon dog, a coon hunting dog named Nig, N I G, uh short for nigger. And a, about a year ago, I asked my daddy, I said, "Hey, I said, you had you remember that hound you had? I'm not dreaming here. You had a hound named Nig, right? He said, yeah. And I said, and you used, and there was a couple of black fellows that you worked with. Of course, he corrected me and told me that's not what you call them. But <laughs> he said, I said, you had a couple of black guys you used to work with who were black, black guys, and you had a coon dog named Nig. Short for nigger. And he said, yeah. And I said, did you ever, were you ever concerned when you called the dog, you know, that you were going to insult them? And he said, Kevin, he said, I bought that dog from one of them. (laughs) And he said, he's the one that named him. (laughs) Yeah, that's no surprise. Blacks call each other that all the time. Yeah. (laughs) 
I've, I found that quote. It says, this is from Jared Taylor's book on white identity. Another Harvard research project concluded bluntly that by 2004, American schools were just as segregated as they were in 1969, the year after Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. And this is because of the white flight concept. You can do all you want with legislation to try to push blacks and whites together, but naturally they prefer people like themselves. And I think the the percentages were at their peak in terms of integration in the in the 80s somewhere. And then after after that, white flight really made its mark. And now uh, not only are they just as segregated as they were back then, but even the schools that do have forced segregation, as you know, uh, when it comes to extracurricular activities and eating lunch, uh, interracial dating, it's still very rare. Kids in school still self-segregate when they're allowed to make their own choices, you know, sit, sit where you want to sit, uh, play whichever sports you want to play. There's still segregation because people prefer their own. If, if you look at television commercials yeah. or especially Internet commercials, advertisements, and you see this beautiful black, I mean, beautiful white girl with a uh, handsome black guy that, you know, has the, the bone structure and the, uh, of a white guy normally. Um, and then, and then I have a son who works, um, at Subway, Lord, I'm giving too much of myself away here, but <laughs> he works at a Subway in a Walmart. And you go and sit in Walmart at Subway. Sometimes I, after work, I stop and, and talk with my son. I don't get to see him much these days. He's going to be 20 this month, and I don't see him very much. So I, sometimes on my way home from work, I stop at Subway, sit around, look at the black and white couples in Subway. They don't look like the black and white couples I see in advertisements. They, the whites are trashy, um, you know, with tattoos and, uh, well, just skanky looking. Do I really have to give a definition of that? (laughs) Are you talking about the mixed couples, black and white? Exactly. Yeah, did, yeah. I, did I not? No, I'm no, sorry. I, I think I you made that, that clear. clear. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. I saw a video on, I think it was an advertisement for the Home Depot, which is a home improvement store up here in the Midwest. Yeah, yeah. yeah they make it look like it's just natural and to, you know, a good looking black girl and a white guy, a good looking handsome white guy, or just your average ordinary couple going to the Home Depot to buy some some tools. That's not what it looks like. It's, it's it's propaganda. It's it's complete propaganda. It makes me mad as hell. There, I'm getting into a, a, a podcast I'm going to be doing shortly on the historical case for kinism. But one other quote from Jared Taylor is he he noted that socio uh, socio so how do you say that socio sociologist so, sociologist Charles Gallagher of LaSalle University has noted that television advertising is quote a carefully manufactured racial Utopia that is far a field of reality, end quote. Uh, even people that study advertising and marketing know that it's very agenda-based. It's not based on reality. And that, that you said it makes you madder than hell. It bugs me a lot, too, because I 
have to go. We, I, I keep my children sheltered from this um, multiculturalism as best I can. But when you go to the store, we go to, um, you know, a local superstore here where they have not only groceries but, but, but clothing, something like a Walmart, and you go through the clothing sections and all these. Uh, Target's a good example. Target has all these pictures of whites and blacks together or mulattoes. And I live in a 90% white area. And why would, <laughs> if, if marketers are supposed to appeal to their people, so you would expect this store to have 90% of the billboards and the advertisements be of white people, but it's the other way around. You hardly see a white family and a real white person. You see them with mulattoes, with blacks. You see multiracial couples. It's complete agenda marketing. So these marketers are actually willing to lose a buck because they could make a lot more money if they gave pictures that looked like us. But they don't even care about their target group. They care about um, manipulating them. Which is exactly what Scott Terry was talking about, right? Scott Terry. Who cares about that guy? <laughs> you know, I'm, just, I'm just saying. He's in the chat room. But is he? <laughs> uh, what, what he was saying is – is what about us? We support you, you know. And uh, they don't care. And if there if there's not some kind of agenda behind that, oh, it's it's completely agenda. It has to be. They they use that. I mean, of course they use it now. But even back when they started going a full hog with forced integration after Jim Crow, they were using the media then to to manipulate people. But it, it doesn't work. People naturally prefer their own kind. But I, I, my, I still hate that, though. I just despise it. My mother, uh, I, I'm just going to go all the way here. And Do just, it, man. Go uh, loose. I, my, my, <laughs> I, I'm just going to expose my bottom, okay? <laughs> By the way, if people have questions from the chat room, ask them now. We'll wrap up here shortly. But go ahead, Kevin. Let it, let it hang out, man. Okay. As it were. Um, my. You've heard of I'm sorry, uh, K. Paul. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, Rusty Shackleford. Whatever. Uh, <laughs> um, my mother worked at at a store downtown as a cashier. Y- you've heard of the uh, when she was pregnant with me. Actually, uh, you've heard of the um, civil rights workers that were killed in uh, uh, Mississippi. Uh, They were buried under a pond dam in Philadelphia, Mississippi by the Ku Klux Klan. Now, I got to tell you, I know from my parents, some of the guys that were involved in that, and they don't give credit to the original Ku Klux Klan that was put together by Nathan Bedford Forrest to save the South. Um, this 60s bunch. They were rabble rousers. They were crazy. Okay. But my mother watched those civil rights workers leave, come and go all the time in their office downtown when she worked there. And she told me they were just trashy, hippie trash, you know, but you're not going to hear that. Right. I mean, they, they died for the cause and went straight to heaven. Um, <laughs> did I go off on a tangent there? Yeah. 
I don't remember what you said that brought that out in me, but yeah, I, I what were you going to say about questions? I think we threw the script away 20 minutes ago. We did, but you know what? I think, I, I don't know about you, but I think it can, it worked out pretty good. If if anyone has any, I was telling the audience if they have questions. Oh, if they have them, uh, okay. Yeah, from the chat room, let us know. Eric, Robert, Mickey, Misty, and three anonymous FBI agents. <laughs> yeah. No, those are uh, those are our elders. Yeah, those, uh, <laughs> those are your elders. Those are your elders. They're going to see you tomorrow. You're not going to be able to. to hey, um, can I throw something in here really quick? Yeah. Since we've already left the script, we were going to discuss why the South must rise again. Yeah. And uh, I, I want to tell you about a guy that I met at a League of the South meeting a couple of years ago. He was from Australia. He was he was born again at home in his home country of Australia. And he was a young man and he had obviously plenty of money to do whatever he wanted to do. And he decided that since he'd become a Christian and he said that he, there were no churches in his area, just nothing, not real Christian churches, at least. And he said he just started to do a study on Christianity and on culture and on the nations. And he came to the conclusion. I asked him, I said, what are you doing? He was with a girl. He was actually living with this girl, but he wasn't living with her like most people live with their girlfriends today. You know, he wasn't sleeping with her. Her mother was allowing him to stay at their home until they got married. He moved here and became engaged to this girl. And they were engaged when I met him. They weren't sleeping together according to their own testimony. And I asked him, I said, what is a guy from Australia doing in Mississippi at a League of the South meeting? And he said that in his studies that he had done, he was looking for the for the the most Christian nation that could be found today in modern times. And he decided to move to the southern United States. Now that. I'm sure he's probably gone through a lot of shock <laughs> since then about some of the stuff that goes on here now, but there's still a remnant here. I must say that I'm disappointed in the South, but at the same time, I see where I don't know an evolutionist. I don't personally know an evolutionist. Um, the homosexuals I know that I know of stay away from me, um, and they don't flaunt it. So there's a remnant here of what used to be here, and it is um. Well, I put it this way, Vermont doesn't need to rise again, do they? No. Mickey wants to know what books or websites 
we can recommend for a further reading on on these issues. I want to say before you go uh, on the question of forced integration, Jared Taylor's chapter, I think it's chapter two or chapter three of white identity is outstanding. I haven't read that book. You're making me want it. It is really, really good. And I, I picked up the Kindle edition for I think nine bucks or something. And um, the paperback isn't much more. I, I think it's worth it. You're, you're, you're supporting a brother and a brother who is for our cause of wide interest. And, just a really good scholarly piece. He will footnote you to death with <laughs> quotes and scholarly articles, and he just talks about the. Uh, tell, ask uh, Mickey if there's anything we could tell him that he doesn't already know. <laughs> 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 no, I'll tell you what. Um, what I mentioned earlier. Um. I became a Calvinist when I was on my journey seeking what I really believe. I left charismatic church and I was praying, Lord, what do I teach these kids? What do I teach these boys? And I did a lot of study, a lot of prayer and I became a Calvinist. And the thing that caused me to be a Calvinist was a debate, listening to a debate on CD wore it out listening to it and what I mentioned earlier um, the debate uh, let me see here oh yeah between uh, Wilkins and the great civil war debate Wilkins still there yeah Yeah, Steve Wilkins and Peter Marshall yes that because because the two best authorities, in my opinion, on the subject come together, two Presbyterian scholars, and they duke it out. And frankly, Steve Wilkins tears them up. One time in the debate, Steve Wilkins stutters and fumbles a little bit, but it, but it's not because he's wrong. It's because he, I think he got a question he wasn't expecting. But I have a DVD I'm looking at right now called Warriors of Honor uh, by a company called Liberty Videos. The uh, Warriors of Honor, the faith and legacies of Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson. And the DVD also goes into slavery and how misrepresented it's been. Yeah. Um. And uh, now these days, I'm guilty. I'm sorry. I'm guilty of uh, um, because I work. You wouldn't believe my work schedule. Uh, I know people have seen me cry about it on Facebook, but uh, it's true that uh, I work so much that I, I listen. I'm I listen to the MP3s in my car and at my desk while I'm working more than I actually read these days. I do read, though. And there is another book that I would recommend. And oddly enough, this book is not strictly about the South and the Civil War and all. But it's about um, 
It's called The Theological Interpretation of American History by Dr. C. Greg Singer, a Presbyterian historian and scholar. Have you ever heard of that? I have not. That is the one of the most awesome books. I mean, everybody, every Christian should read that book. I'm, I'm convinced. And he it's not strictly about the South, but he doesn't... Um, because of the sub, because he's teaching on constitutionalism and how we've veered away from constitutionalism, he um, he may he has to go into it. <laughs> and Dr. Singer believed in that in secession that it was necessary and that it was uh, legal. And even though I like the book, I like that aspect. I like the, to see it in a book that's not about that, right? In other words, yeah. as they say, they, he didn't have a bone to pick. Yeah. And he talks about it anyway. That's a very important book. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. I, yeah. I, I want to mention a, a, a post from a guy we've had on the show, Tom Hingist, firstward.us. He has a really nice, succinct summary of, of Lincoln. I think it's called an introduction to Lincoln. So go to firstword.us, and if you don't know about these these um, buried facts on Lincoln, do a search for um, an, an, an introduction to Lincoln, and it's a really good piece to get you up to speed on on him and why the, the war broke out. And... LouRockwell.com. There's an archive there. I think it's called the Lincoln Archive. So many articles, many of them written by Tom DeLorenzo, who also has his two books on Lincoln. Go to Lou Rockwell, read the Lincoln Archive and DeLorenzo stuff. You mentioned the great debate between Peter Marshall and Steve Wilkins. That's a good one. I've seen that one. What else can we say? I mentioned the Jerry Taylor book. In terms of why the South must rise again, would you mind, Kevin, if I just read a couple paragraphs from John Weaver's sermon? Hey, go for it, man. Why do I keep calling you Kevin? Your name is K-Paul. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, it's Rusty. Rusty, yeah. Shackleford. <laughs> <laughs> Dale Gribble. <laughs> yeah. I'll, um, he, he starts, there's a sermon on sermonaudio.com, search for John Weaver, called Why the South Must Rise Again. I actually have the the award document that he sent me and I'll, I'll post that. I don't think Mr. Weaver would mind. He starts with Psalm ninety four sixteen. who will rise up for me against the evildoers or who will stand up for me against the workers of iniquity. And from that point, our, our readers who don't know much about this are encouraged to go to those links and resources we told you about and read about what really happened to the South, especially the reconstruction years. Not only the the horrible uh, total war the North engaged on the South, the raping and the pillaging and the the, the uh, burning of houses and so forth, but the the Reconstruction era was horrible too. And then he, and then think about that verse. And will God not vindicate those who were right? They had the right to secede. They were the righteous Christians against the Unitarian North by and large. And then Weaver closes with these two paragraphs. I submit to you that when the South lost the war, the whole nation lost. We are now a conquered and occupied 
sorry, we are now conquered and occupied by a federal bureaucracy that is intent on controlling every aspect of our lives. Steve Wilkins has aptly said the war did not end slavery. It simply enlarged the plantation. There is no alternative. The South must rise again and seek to restore our lost liberties, rights, and our Constitution as well as common sense. I'll post the the link to the sermon in the post. I'll post the link to Weaver's sermon in our our podcast post as well as the attachment to this file. People want to read the sermon, but there it is. The South must rise again. Who else is going to rise? California? (laughs) (laughs) Rhode Island? (laughs) Well, with no more questions uh, from the chat room, Mr. K. Paul, do you have any any closing observations, shouts out, um, rants? I do have a question. Obama hate. <laughs> Obama hate is, is okay. It's just too easy to find, you know? Man, Mickey is doing all my work for me. He just posted all the, the first word stuff, the Lou Rockwell stuff, the sermon audio. Thank you, Mickey. Isn't, isn't he a solid, rock-solid guy? Mickey is awesome. Mickey is an incredible guy, and I want him to hear me say it. Um, he just had his act together every time he's been on your program, just to the point that I was a nervous wreck knowing I was going to follow him up here. I know I didn't come right behind him, but I was like, oh, my God, I got to follow this guy. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to have him back um, on soon to talk about Envy. Got to get you yeah. back, Mickey. <laughs> yeah. Hey. Um, so I'm sorry to cut you. You were saying in closing? Well, well, this is pro- This may not be a good time for this. Just say so if it's not, okay? But you and I had talked about Alex Jones' example, and I didn't know what you meant by that. Oh, I had something in the notes to talk about. Am I am I gonna make? I don't I don't mean to make it another thirty minute program. <laughs> no, let me let me look and see what I was going to talk about. Oh, just the, the he was talking about. Oh, here it is. There's there's a there's a, some discussion about a um a, a march on Washington and on Independence Day. Where, yeah, where, yeah, the, the guys with the rifles. Yeah, some some Jew named Adam. Kokesh is organizing a, an armed. Oh, that's arm. a Jew that's doing it. Oh, he's total heap. Yep. Wow. Yeah, he's he's Jew. And um, they're going to put rifles, loaded rifles and pistols, and walk into D.C., which is which is illegal, but because they believe it's unconstitutional, they think that they should do it as civil disobedience. And uh, Jones was talking about that, about civil disobedience, and then he made the parallel. He said, "This this will send a message." And the, the, if the government's going to oppose it, and if other media outlets and talking heads are going to oppose that, then they need to also oppose uh, the, the the civil rights disobedience. And he, and he he called the owners of restaurants racist. He said, "All those, you know, what do you think about those racist um, racist restaurant owners? They wouldn't let blacks come in." And and he made that parallel, and I thought that was so. So ugly because that that was a matter of free association, and do we really want to compare taking away our Second Amendment and robbing us of our right of self preservation 
with uh, what so-called racist restaurant owners did and basically saying who they wanted to come in. You restaurant. Know, if you really want me to say something in closing, I will say, I want to tell you this. That is, I find it absolutely incredible is that people want to stand for the cause of so-called conservatism and stand against the new world order. And yet they want to hide behind parts of it. That, um, that was not a good way to put it. Um, in other words, well, that's exactly what he's doing. He's going racism, racism, pointing the finger, racism. And he doesn't realize that that um, he's using an argument of the enemy. Oh, yeah. Uh, he may realize it. Now, I don't know. Maybe he's making a lot of money. I don't know. Oh, he makes, yeah, I think he's worth five million bucks. But people who want to take away our gun, gun rights, it cannot be compared uh, to restaurant owners who simply want to practice free association and determine exactly. and and determine who their clientele is. That's just ridiculous. And he even considers himself a libertarian, doesn't he? That's that's a good point. If you're a libertarian, you say, "Look, let let, let the market handle it. If if blacks can't go to uh, K. Paul's dine, diner." then they can go somewhere else and they can put the pressure on him by spending their money somewhere else. And the libertarian market will take care of such problems. But well, K Paul would have to move his restaurant up North. <laughs> I, 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 I've, I've heard every libertarian say that freedom includes the freedom to make bad decisions or unpopular decisions or non PC decisions, but he doesn't even say that he makes that ridiculous comparison. So that's what the that's what the Alex Jones example was about. Okay, uh, maybe I shouldn't have brought it up. No, it's okay. It was it was it was related to the point of free association, which is really what uh, was so abhorrent about the forced civil rights. Yes, Misty, uh, his wife is Jewish, I believe. I've, I think that's yeah, she is. Uh, Alex Jones, I think his wife is Jewish. That that's one of the reasons why he uh, does not want to touch the Israel issue. He's, exactly. He's he's not an Israel worshiper, but he's he doesn't he he stays away from really criticizing that parasit parasitic state. There's a new world order, but it's not the Jews. Couldn't be. <laughs> yeah. Well, anything anything in conclusion, K. Paul. Hey, I'm done, man. I have enjoyed it, and um, I uh, thank you. You've made me very comfortable, and and. Uh, I was a little nervous at first, but I really enjoyed it. And um, I, I, you've really made helped me through the week. And I've, I've enjoyed getting to know you better. Well, I appreciate it. I've really enjoyed talking to you online and offline. And I think it was a fun show. It's a topic that we could do three, four, five parts on it because there's so much to get to. And I really enjoyed the conversational style that we that we that we decided to use for this topic. I try to be a little lighthearted with everything because everything's so serious today. If you don't have a little humor in you, you, you might just wind up in the backyard with a pistol in your mouth. You know, <laughs> I think that's, that is a good point to learn for, um, for all of us who have taken the red pill, uh, that <laughs> it, you have to laugh. You have to find hobbies. You have to keep it 
it's it's got to feel good when you go to bed because if it's all anxiety and worry and uh, it, it's it can eat you up. It can it can eat you up. And one thing we all know, and I say we we know who we are, is that God is sovereign. Yes, and He's in control. And one day, and you and you you said this to me this week, I think. And one day, when the Spirit of God covers the earth like the waters cover the ocean, um, that that day's coming. Yeah. And as as Rush Dooney said, we have to be patient, even if we if we're not the generation to see that happen. We have got to think about our children, our children's children, our children's children's children, and people who are dishonest about these things are cheating them. They're liars. They're kidding themselves, and they they need to wake up. And they need to be what they need to be. My my sons are going to be twenty and eighteen this month, and uh, I'm concerned about their great grandkids. Right. Well, God will vindicate us. He will, as is the motto of the Confederate Confederates. Well, <laughs> June first, we'll be back with Jamie Dobb to talk about white issues in the UK as well as his experience in South Africa when he went to visit there as well so tune in then and we'll have some more good Tribal Theocrat live shows stay tuned also for more updates we'll see you next time at TribalTheocrat.com <laughs>